Feeling better? Looking better? Making life better? It's Life Tips. Life Tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Bob. Bob, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. The Power of 50 Bits. That's an interesting title for a book that's going to change how we think and <laughs> about the world and making it better for ourselves. What's with the bits? What are the 50 bits that you have in mind yeah. in the title of your book? Yeah, so the, the book is a field guide for people to improve behaviors. Their, their, their behaviors, customers, you know, uh, coworkers, loved ones. And it's based on this insight about how our brains work. So your brain, my brain, all human brains process about 10 million bits of information a second, but the conscious part of your brain, what we think of as our minds, that runs at only 50 bits per second. So when we talk about the power of 50 bits, it's a reminder uh, that our brains are really wired for inattention and inertia, and that's really what's at the heart of many of our suboptimal or bad behaviors. I was reading something recently that suggested multitasking is destroying our brain. Does that tie in with with some of your insights to the book, and how would you respond to that? I think our brain is destroying multitasking. I'd I'd say it the other other way way around. around, Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're just not – I mean, that 50 bits is a very scarce resource. So if you think about those 10 million bits, what your brain does every second, think of that as a cup of sugar. The the deliberate decision-making sort of conscious part of it that you can actually control, that would be like 10 grains of sugar. So we, we really can't do much. We point those 50 bits to the things that are either pressing or pleasurable, and everything else happens under uh, the radar, happens sort of automatically. You were the chief scientist at Express Scripts, an interesting, um, uh, working on some, some healthcare experience for patients. What did you learn in that role that led you to some of the conclusions you've come to in the book and some of the advice that you're offering? Yeah, my training is really in how people are supposed to make decisions, not how they actually make decisions, but how they're supposed to make decisions. So you can think of that as sort of applied classical economics. And uh, what that means, let's take an example, patients who aren't taking their medications as prescribed. Now, if you look at the world through those rational lenses, sort of how people are supposed to behave, you and you saw somebody not taking their pills, you would conclude that they were either didn't think they could afford the medications, the medications weren't worth the money, or maybe that the medications were causing side effects. And then you would pursue strategies to try to address those things. You haven't talked to a pharmacist, you try to change their co-payments, all that kind of stuff. And that's important. But what we found was two-thirds of the time that wasn't the case at all. People were simply forgetting to take their pills or procrastinating on getting a, a refill, a new prescription. So I became really interested in how people actually make decisions. And uh, that's when I learned about this, you know, how, how scarce a resource Attention is, and I became fascinated with the idea of instead of trying to change people's minds, let's change the environment, reshape it so that people's natural inclinations, which have been honed over millions of years, Mm. so those inclinations lead people more naturally to to better behavior. That's what the book's really about. Where does it go wrong? 
Bob. What what, what happens with our with our intentions and, and when we're unable to fulfill those intentions? What's what's happening in the brain? Are we rationalizing bad decisions? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, since since we're wired, we're essentially wired for inattention and inertia. We point those things at what's either pressing or pleasurable, and we let the rest of it ride. Mm. That's what creates a gap between our good intentions and our actual behaviors. And that's really a key insight, because most behavior change experts, whether they're coaches or marketers or managers or even ourselves, family members, et cetera, or just ourselves, we tend to assume, either implicitly or explicitly, when we see a bad behavior, underlying it is a bad intention. But that's not really the case. Often, a bad behavior is coupled with a good intention that's just not acted on. And the reason that happens is because uh, our brains are built for a different time and a place. We were in an environment, our brains emerged in an environment that required us to have these quick, twitch, instinctual reactions. The environment's changed quite a bit, and it's mostly changed since the Industrial Revolution. So really, really recently, from an evolutionary standpoint, our brains haven't had a chance to catch up. So it's really, um, it's really just that our brains are like fish out of water, and we need to adjust for the fact that our environment has changed quickly with these strategies that I lay out in the book. So what are some adjustments that we can make to think better and, and act better and do better and be better? Yeah, one of the stressing the word better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of, of, that a charity used. Uh, and there's different, I mean, sort of different strategies for different kinds of problems. But there's a charity that's associated with the pet retailer, pet supply retailer called PetSmart, and the, the charity is PetSmart Charities. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone there, but here's what happens when you check out. You you go up with all your stuff. The cashier runs everything through the scanner. Uh, you know, it totals it all up, and you swipe your card, and right before you're going to sign, I mean, right before you're doing the deal of, of uh, allowing them to charge your credit card, this question pops up on the screen, and it says, do you want to donate to help save homeless pets? And it's got some number, you know, $1, $2, $5, and a big red no thanks button that everybody behind you in line can see if you press that one. Um, and what's remarkable is that from 2007 to 2011, overall in the country, uh, individual charitable contributions dropped 3%, but contributions to PetSmart charities went up 85%. Hmm. Now, the reason this happened was that uh, the PetSmart charities folks understood this problem of inattention and inertia. They metaphorically grabbed customers by the shoulders and said, we need your 50 bits for 10 seconds. Just tell us if you want to donate or not. And guess what? People donated in you know, gobs. Uh, that's one way to make sure that your underlying intentions actually see the light of day. It's called requiring choice, where you stop somebody in the flow and you say, do you want this or do you want that? Either one's okay, but you have to let us know. And once you see, once you sort of understand this as a strategy, you see it everywhere. Some gas pumps ask you if you want a car wash or not. They don't try to cajole you. They don't try to convince you how important it is to have a car wash. They just ask you, and they just believe that there are a lot of people who want to have a car wash but their brains just never get around to floating that up to the top. So they, mm -hmm. so they do it for you. Hmm. Uh, so that requires choice. That's one of the strategies. What are some of the other strategies that we will, we'll see on a daily basis? Cause I now get that. I see that. I was always right. wondering about that. Is it the power of the question in that case, by the way? And, and, uh, you know, yeah. Asking, yeah, you know, if you will, the permission, is that a big part of this? 
it's, you're, you're on to something there. So what, the biggest effect is stopping people and saying, you know, what do you want to do? Uh, because that forces the 50 bits to point at a problem that it wouldn't point out otherwise. And your belief and your faith is that most people, when you ask them, will do the right thing, in this case, making a donation to this charity. But the words they used were actually really important, right? They didn't say, do you want to contribute to build a, a shelter for stray dogs? Mm-hmm. Right? They used the phrase homeless pets, which conjures up a whole set of emotions, right? Pets mm-hmm. belong in families. If there's a family that doesn't have a home, mm-hmm. then something awful is happening. There's just no good story that ends with the two words homeless pet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, so, so the way they frame it is, is important, and framing is another one of the strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, another strategy that you'd be familiar with is the use of defaults or opt-outs. So most companies, when you join them now, uh, they, they ask, they, they used to ask, do you want to participate in the 401k plan? And about 30 to 40% of people would do it. Instead, what they say is, you're in the 401k plan, let us know if you want out. Mm-hmm. Participation rates are around 80 or 90%. So that's, that's an opt-out. Right. Why would they and want to change something that might offer benefit? Is that the theory? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the idea there was that people knew they were supposed to be saving for retirement, but because it took some effort and attention, uh, they just didn't get around to do it. So instead, they just flipped everything on its head. They put you in the plan and then said, let us know if you want out. And, you know, it works really – it's a very powerful strategy. Hmm. How, how, how rooted is the book and your thinking in the latest neuroscience developments? Or is it all uh, all in? <laughs> yeah, well, the book is meant to be a, a practical field guide. So you'll mm-hmm. find, I mean, there's, there's science underneath all that stuff, but I kind of use some of the strategies to get the ideas across. So another one of the strategies is piggybacking, where you attach a behavior that you want somebody to do, including yourself, to a behavior that that person already finds inherently attractive. So in the book, that means storytelling. Mm-hmm. Right? Every chapter starts with an interesting story that's meant to be entertaining and relevant and to make a point. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, so there's, there's a gods of science in there, but at the end of the day, and this is something I learned when I was working at Express Scripts, which is a large, you know, tens of thousands of employees, um, you have to make things easy to understand and they have, people have to be able to carry it around in their heads. So, um, so that's really, you know, I've sort of boiled the science down to the essence that ne- that's needed for people to understand it and believe it, but most importantly, be able to use it day to day. Who is the right target audience for this book? It sounds like marketers could greatly benefit from the book. Well, it turns, you know, that's what I start, that's sort of where I started, but, but it turns out that it can be used by almost anyone. And I know that sounds kind of self-promoting, but mm-hmm. it's actually, but besides being self-promoting, it's actually true. And the reason is that unless somebody does something, nothing really happens. I mean, mm-hmm. behavior is actually mission critical to almost every part of the human endeavor. So it, so the people that I'm getting feedback from, interestingly, are um, are often folks who are trying to figure out how to change their own behaviors, how to change behaviors of loved ones. Of course, lots of folks in organizations, but not necessarily marketing people, could be HR people. Coaches, folks in religious organizations, you know, it run, sort of runs the gamut. And, and the reason is that behavior is mission critical, and we're not that good at it. You know, I mean, just look at every New Year's, <laughs> New Year's resolution, right? Mm-hmm. We're really good at making them because we make the same ones over and over. Every year. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
What would you say about that very, very case, the New Year's resolution? It happened to be something I wanted to ask you about anyway. Is it is this about resolutions? Is this about understanding the, the, the decision path, why we make it, and why why don't New Year's resolutions work in your mind? Yeah, so there's um, there's a couple of answers to that, but I'll but I'll just tell you why they don't work, and then you know give you a hint. Go of, from there, uh, yeah. the, the right direction. Yeah. So the reason the reason that they don't work, and it does seem almost like an optical illusion, because when we're making them, we we earnestly plan on better behavior, and the reason that is is that there are sort of two modules in our brain. There's a module in our brain called the limbic system, which has been around for a really long time. Reptiles have them, and it's really just the pain pleasure center. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only it's only affected by things that are happening in the here and now. Okay, mm-hmm. there's another part of the brain called the neocortex, which is which is the you know the new shiny part of our brain. It's just mm-hmm. it just hasn't been around that long, and that's the part of your brain that sort of acts like your mother would want you to act. It weighs the costs and the benefits, and and says you know you should whether or not you should do something. So, when we're planning on behavior behavior, so making a New Year's resolution, we're thinking about things in the future. The limbic system just couldn't care less because there's no pleasure or pain involved. It's, it's going to happen in the future. You think about something like exercise. You say, this is the year I'm going to exercise. That's your neocortex correctly weighing the benefits and the costs. The costs are the hassles and the effort. The benefits are fitting into your genes and maybe living longer, right? So your neocortex says, this is what we're going to do. Now, January 1st, January 2nd rolls around. It's time to exercise. All of a sudden, your neocortex is saying, yep, still a good deal, you know, the, the benefits are worth the cost, but your limbic system is jumping up and down like a two-year-old saying, I don't want to exercise, I don't want to exercise, because it doesn't see any benefits. All it sees is effort. Uh-huh. And so your brain has this fight going on, literally, this fight between these two modules, and sometimes your neocortex wins out, and sometimes your limbic system uh-huh. wins out. And sometimes what your neocortex says is, well, are your brain together? Both those parts say, well, we'll do it tomorrow. In which case, the limbic system sits down and is happy because they don't have to do it today, and the neocortex, you know, really believes it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that's why we that's why we procrastinate. That's why we earnestly plan on good behaviors and have a tough time engaging in them. The the way you address that mm-hmm. is is mostly to outsource any of the hassles that you can that are in the here and now. Now, for exercise, you really can't pay somebody to exercise for you, so that's not the you know that's not the final solution. But the second thing you do is change the um, change the payoffs so that the things that are good for you in the long term feel better in the here and now, and the things that are bad for you in the long term feel worse in the here mm-hmm. and now. And that's what the strategies in the the book do. How try do you to do bring that? The future stay with stay with, stay with yeah. this, the exercise model that you were just describing there. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you yeah. how do you surface the good and push out the bad? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, uh, my wife is really good at this, right? She's, uh, and by that I mean she's been the guinea pig for a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wants to do these exercises, you know, abs exercise, all this kind of stuff. She she really doesn't like doing it. She likes having done it, but she doesn't like doing it. Mm-hmm. And finally, she hit upon this solution, which involves videos that are of a ballerina. And Gina has always wanted to be a ballerina. She's only about five feet tall. She's absolutely gorgeous, but she's not, you know, she doesn't have the physique of a ballerina. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, when she's watching these videos, doing her abs workout and her arms workout and the cardio and the stretching, in her head, she's a friggin' ballerina. <laughs> and, uh, it, and for her, that's, that's, called, that, that's an example of piggybacking, where you attach a desired behavior, in this case working out, to a desirable behavior, which is, in this case, imagining that you're a ballerina. So for her, that's, that's what seems to work. And she's been up for a few months now. It seems to, 
seems to work for her. Brilliant. Um, let's take a break, everybody, back in, in, in just a few minutes. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis, SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investments. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Conversion Conference, the can't-miss CRO event of 2016. Join over 750 people from dozens of countries gathering in Las Vegas, May 18th and 19th, for the biggest industry-wide conversion event ever. Four parallel tracks of top content will allow you to personalize the exact topics that you want to focus on, interact with expert speakers at informal networking events, and birds of a feather lunch table topics. Meet dozens of leading CRO companies face-to-face in the expo hall. Get hands-on with pre-conference workshops and master classes. Join us for fun activities such as zip lining and Tim Ash's after party in the presidential suite. Oh yeah, did we mention that it's in Vegas, baby? May 18th and 19th, conversion conference last year sold out fast and it's expected to sell out again. So don't miss it. Go to conversionconference.com for details right now. And now back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back, everyone. Here with Bob. Bob, great stuff we're talking about today. How did you put these pieces together? (laughs) How did you discover, you know, obviously with some pretty hardcore reading here and your own scientific approach to life, but explain to me the discovery of some of this information in the yeah, you know, I, I've been trying to, I've been trying to, you know, figure out exactly what the path was, you know, by looking in the rearview mirror. But I was, for, I was fortunate enough at Express Scripts to be able to pull together 
a large, uh, you know, an important advisory group. So people like Dan Ariely and other psychologists and uh, health economists. And I was, and I, I had also had the advantage of not being an expert. I wasn't a behavioral economist. I wasn't a psychologist. And I had to, I had to develop, you know, strategies and solutions that we could actually deploy in real life. So the academic part of it was inherently interesting to me. But I could only spend as much time on that as I could, you know, sort of excuse myself for in coming up with these programs. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that was it. I think it was this combination of not knowing enough to know, you know, when I was um, asking the wrong questions, which turned out to be the right questions, Mm -hmm. and um, having to attach them to actual programs. And I did get enough rope at Express Scripts to do some exploration, but it was always within the confines of how can you turn this into a program that actually improves the health of, you know, 100 million Americans. Hmm. I'm fascinated with when I ask you about piggybacking. You talk about uh, Hmm. piggybacking on a laugh in the book and the the Burma shave example. Can, Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So um, Burma Shave was one of the first uh, brushless uh, uh, shaving creams. And they, like every other company, had to figure out how to, you know, sell their product. They weren't the only one. And they stumbled on this uh, series of advertising. I think it's in Minnesota where they started. I can't quite remember. Um, and, and this, you know, I'm dating myself. I'm not <laughs> – not everybody knows this, but you used to drive for long stretches on – uh, roads and highways going from one town to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was flat, it, and certainly Minnesota, it was flat and it was probably boring. And uh, Burma Shave had this idea of creating essentially a poem, and they would place each stanza on a small billboard, uh, one after the another. So you'd see the first stanza, and then you'd you know, drive a little ways, and then you'd see the next. It built this sort of anticipation. And uh, they became uh, humorous uh, with a pitch for their product. And then, um, then they became humorous with a safety pitch, you know, while you're driving and, and their product. So it was one example of using humor to sell uh, products. And, of course, humor has been, you know, used for a long time in, uh, in advertising. Hmm. But there are, we, other, there are other kinds of – yeah, go ahead. Uh, Super Bowl ads come to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, you know, it, it, you got to wonder if those things are worth it or not. They, they, they're very expensive, and they're 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 very entertaining. Um, maybe maybe they do work. I I don't know. The the most interesting example to me of piggybacking, the one that's been you know really changed has changed the health of the public, mm. um, is is toothpaste. Mm-hmm. People have known for thousands of years that you need to brush your teeth. Egyptians used to use sticks and all this kind of stuff to get the you know get the muck off your teeth, but it was just it just never took off. I mean, people just couldn't get their heads around doing it every day. And um, Pepsodent, I think it was, stumbled on or how what whatever they added. They started adding mint to the formulation, and all of a sudden it was really pleasant to brush your teeth. It had nothing to do with preventing cavities, mm-hmm. right? It just turned out to feel really good in the here and now. And so, that ca- so when they did that, cavity prevention really became a side effect of making your mouth feel tingly and clean. Mm-hmm. That's a great example of piggybacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the color, the color the blue few- is also quite... Uh, revealing with both detergents and toothbrushes and things that we want clean. 
someone. Yeah, it's really it's fascinating. fascinating. Read, yeah, yeah. I just read a I read an article about blue in um, gosh, what was it about? It was uh, I don't know. It's something attractive about blue water, even in uh, th- these were in quarries, I think, that had been filled up, and it was you know mm-hmm. with with rainwater, groundwater, and they're mm-hmm. just inherently attractive, even if they're not you know even if they're not safe. Yeah. Um, so there's something there's something in our you know deep 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 past Conscious, yeah. that makes yeah that makes blue uh, seem clean for mm-hmm. sure. What are your thoughts on gamification? Well, that's a kind of piggybacking, right? I mean, at least yeah. parts of it. I, you have I an example of Vegas, as you say, what happens in Vegas could happen at home. <laughs> right. You give right. an example so there, you know, but. Yeah, there there was a there've been some efforts to try to get people to take their medications on a daily basis, which people are not that good at, and they're very clever sorts of things. So the idea would be that you have this pill bottle, and every time you open the cap and take out a pill, you essentially are in a lottery, right? And there's a chance that you could a one in ten chance of winning. I don't know what it was, three dollars, and a one in a hundred chance of winning a hundred dollars, something something like that. Um, and they they did it did increase pill-taking behavior, but the problem was when you remove the incentives, you remove that game away, um, nothing nothing much happened. And uh, unless the medication is really, really, you know, sort of low-saving, uh, you can't do that at scale. It's, it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive to do. So picking that all of these strategies, you know, none of them are, you know, there aren't any free lunches, really. The, the heavy lifting of the book, I promise the readers, the heavy lifting of the book will not be, you know, slogging through some dry reference guide. It's a really fun book to read. Mm-hmm. The heavy lifting will be, you know, how does this work for me? So for Gina, when we were talking about piggybacking, it turned out these, these were not just videos, but ballet videos because that means something really important to my wife. It wouldn't work for everybody else. That's the heavy lifting is finding out which strategy and how to apply it to the setting you, you know, you're interested in. Is, is the solution subjective for each individual in your mind of betterment? And, you know, your, your example was so crisp with your wife and the ballet, um, you know, and, and I would also note the imagery that is associated with that was powerful for her. But is it is it yeah. is it literally that you know subjective in that you you have to find that silver bullet that will that will cause you to to uh, to, to to right the ship. Well, I think it depends on the strategy. Uh, and I know that sounds a little bit squeamish, but I actually do think it depends on the strategy. So there's definitely some stuff that's idiosyncratic and. Um, you know, for piggybacking, the reason it's idiosyncratic is that what really, you know, toots one person's horn may not toot another person's horn. Mm-hmm. So it would, probably wouldn't work to do an exercise program in which everybody watch, watches ballet videos. It would work for the people who are really turned on by ballet, but, you know, for me, it, wouldn't, it, may, it might not do so much and I might not be alone. There are others that are quite powerful and probably less idiosyncratic. So, um, for example, the PetSmart example of stopping people and saying, do you want to donate or not? That worked pretty well. The key there was to pick the audience of folks who are likely to have a latent interest in donating to help save homeless pets. So their, their clientele is perfect. Opt-outs are very powerful, right? So um, the 401k stuff works because we all want to save for retirement, or most of us do. And the heavy lifting there was about filling out forms. They took all that on. When you, put, when you do an opt-out and put somebody in the program, of course, on the back end, 
somebody's filling out the, those forms and enrolling the people, and then the people who want out, they're, they're taking care of that as well. So they're not all idiosyncratic. Uh, some of them are, and a lot of them aren't. And the, the big three in the book, which are the opt-out approach, or calling it let it, let it ride, um, pre-commitment, which we haven't talked about, that's uh, making a decision in the present that changes how easy or hard it is to do something tempting in the future, and active choice, which we have talked about. Those are the big three, and those are a lot less democratic. Hmm. Your theories are hard at work in the political world, for sure. Can you talk a little bit about how politicians understand some of these complexities and are trying to uh, you know, tap into certain market niches based upon their ability to change or not change? And talk, talk about that yeah. just a little bit. Yeah, two things come to mind. The one that's sort of overwhelmingly uh, prevalent is, which is to change the words in a way that elicits either a positive or negative response based on the word you choose. So, for example, some people would say, uh, you know, we're writing legislation that's going to regulate drilling for oil. And another, somebody who's against that might say, you know, we, we don't want to shackle our ability to explore for energy. Those are both the same, but, you know, drilling for oil conjures up um, Jed Clampett and black gold and stuff <laughs> spewing all over the place. Mm-hmm. And exploring for energy, you know, you see, you just, I think, immediately of white spacesuits and NASA. I mean, to think of exploration and energy. It doesn't make sense, but that's, mm-hmm. that's in fact, what happened. So you get a lot of that. And the last, uh, boy, when was it? Uh, when the, all this, you know, brouhaha over the, in the debate over the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Mm-hmm. You know, there was one phrase that took on a life of its own, which was death panels. You know, and that immediately just conjures up these, you know, uh, bureaucrats sitting in a dimly lit room making decisions about, you know, whether your grandmother was going to get the care she needed. I mean, and that was intentional, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're really good at that kind of stuff. I think there was an attempt to do pre-commitment uh, a long time ago with the sequestration stuff, right? Where they were supposed to rein all these things in. If they didn't do it, they're going to make these drastic cuts. That was sort of a, you know, it was sort of the um, mutually assured destruction, you know, approach. But uh, it didn't work. It, it didn't work because um, what they just sort of unwrapped, they just sort of, avoided most of those penalties. So I don't think they're, I don't, I think the politicians have been particularly good at anything except maybe some of the reframing stuff. That's probably a little harsh, but, but that, you know, it's hard to think of anything hmm. else. It's been great chatting with you today. I want to thank you for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the interest and especially for your time. Indeed. I have two final questions for you, Bob. Who would you like to get a hold of you and how can they get a hold of you? Oh, well, anybody who's interested in behavior, for sure. Uh, I, I really feel strongly that uh, we've been barking up the wrong tree when it comes to behavior change. It makes so much more sense to stop trying to change people's minds and instead change the environment so that people's natural inclinations lead them to better behaviors and outcomes that they want over the long term. People want to get in touch with me can visit my website. It's www.com. 50 bits, that's F-I-F-T-Y-B-I-T-S dot com. If you find lots of information there, you can leave me a note. Uh, happy to interact with whoever's interested. Super. Thanks again for being with us, Bob. And I appreciate thank you. Uh, yes, indeed. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. 
This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.